Good afternoon. My name is Daniel Peterson, and I'm uh, the moderator or the immoderator of this, uh, of this session, which is devoted to the question of whether the war on Islamic fundamentalism can be justified. And with me on stage are Ayan Hirsi Ali and Scott Horton and Abby Hall. Now, my understanding is that this is just to be a nice informal discussion. It's not a debate, but it may turn into one. Uh, and, um, so I suspect that we have a, a division of opinion here. In answer to the question, um, can the war on Islamic fundamentalism be justified? I suspect we probably have two no's. Correct. Am I right? And I think we have a strong yes, and I'm something of a yes. So, but I'm also the moderator, so I don't know where that puts me. Um, in any event, I thought that maybe what we'd start doing is um, start with the, with the negative, possibly. We don't have prepared speeches, but if you just want to lay out something, we'll get started going this way. How about that? So from my perspective, um, I am an economist by training and someone who studies defense and peace economics. And as an economist, the focus of my research is on issues related to things like militarism. But more broadly than that, economics as a science is focused on what is possible, what is achievable, and then what are the consequences of policies once they are undertaken. And I think that we've seen very clearly over the last 20 years at this point what a war on fundamentalist or radical Islam has brought us, which is the opposite of success. In fact, these policies have been a breeding ground for the very type of terrorist activities that they purport to undermine. And what's more than that, especially too for people within this crowd, is that when we look at the policies undertaken with respect to, again, Islamic extremism, particularly abroad, is that the tools and techniques that are developed as a part of that policy have not stayed abroad, and in fact have very, very much come to be used extensively at home. Whether we're talking about issues related to surveillance, whether we're talking about issues related to policing, of course there's a lot of overlap there. And so I think that we have a variety of pieces of historical evidence that frankly we can look at and we can answer this question um, in my mind quite clearly. Please let me point out that there's something with the sound, so I've had only like a third of what you said. Yeah, it's a little difficult for us over on this end to Sorry. <laughs> not just to understand you conceptually, but <laughs> to understand you at all. A uh, little bit of an echo. I don't know if that can be fixed uh, or not. but. Uh, all right, well, Scott, if you'd like to. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say that uh, defining the war on Islamic extremism so broadly has really always been uh, an attempt to deceive us and essentially abate and switch. From the night of September 11th, George Bush, even though he already knew who had attacked the United States, he didn't declare war on Al-Qaeda. He declared war on terror your presumed emotional reaction to acts of terrorism by anyone anywhere in the world. And then they immediately conflated Al-Qaeda with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda with Saddam Hussein's regime, even though Saddam Hussein was a secularist and probably an atheist who worshiped only himself, shaved his chin every morning and wore a beret like a Frenchman. And they said, oh, no, that counts as Islamic extremism too. And they based the lie, the, the premise of the whole war was that history began on September 11th when radical or fundamentalist Islam turned people into psychopaths who attacked our innocent country that was just a sleeping giant minding its own business. When that's really just not true at all. These guys were mercenaries who fought for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's governments in the late 70s and early 1980s. They were turned against the United States by H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton's policies in the Middle East. And they were turned against us for earthly political reasons. And even though bin Laden and Zawahiri and the leaders of Al-Qaeda were you know, self-professed 
pious fundamentalists anyway. Many of their followers have not been. In fact, some of the 7th, September 11th hijackers spent time at the strip clubs drinking and doing cocaine. And we've seen in terrorist attacks ever since September 11th, including in the 2010s and the various attacks in France and in Belgium, that many of these attackers were barely acquainted with Islam at all. The only thing Islam had to do with their action was that it formed the basis for solidarity between the victims of American foreign policy and the people who were then fighting to avenge them. Really the same thing here. When America was attacked on September 11th in New York and Virginia, you had people from far away, Texas and California and Colorado and Florida and Hawaii and everywhere, join the army. Christians, Jews and Muslims joined the U.S. Army to go and fight against the enemy that had attacked their country. And the big lie was that that was the first day in history when in fact our government had gotten us into this mess in the first place. And then they defined their terms so broadly as to, well, as you all know, wage war in 14 nations since then, including four or five major regime change operations. And in fact, in Libya, Syria, and the war in Yemen, our government has outright allied itself with Al-Qaeda forces on the ground there against enemies that they hate more, like Muammar Gaddafi, Bashar al-Assad, and the Houthi regime that has taken control in uh, Sana'a. So I'll stop there for now, but that's my first answer. Thanks. Okay, so I see it differently. Um, and the reason why I do that is because I look at two things. Number one, and I would have framed the panel title differently, is, is this a civilizational conflict? Is there such a thing as Western civilization and an Islamic civilization, and what's their relationship? And if that relationship is one of conflict, collaboration, or competition, it's all of that, obviously, because civilizations compete, they're in conflicts, they collaborate, and I think when it comes to Western civilization and the Islamic civilization, we're seeing all of these three things all at the same time. I can see you doing this, so I'll try and speak up. So, civilizational conflict. That's one part. The second part is, what is America's position in the world? Is America just any other country observing from a distance whatever it is that Western civilization is getting into, whatever Islamic civilization is getting into? And, and that's just a different way of looking at it. The way I look at it is, yes, we are having a civilizational conflict that from 9-11-2001, uh, people like me who, you know, I was born and raised a Muslim, but I made my way into the West, people like me were being put on the spot by the young men who committed the attack. And basically the question they were asking is, whose side are you on in this enormous bigger than yourself civilizational conflict. Are you with us or are you against them? So there are Muslims, millions of them, who had to figure out which side do I belong, but also millions of Americans and other Westerners. That's how I think the attackers of 9-11-2001 framed it. There is a moral set of values that the West stands for, a moral set of values that political Islamists stand for, those who attacked America, and we were being given the choice, which side are you on? And then I think the next question is, what is then America's position? America defeated the Soviet Union, it was the remaining superpower. So what was America going to do? Was it going to take the lead in this civilizational conflict, or maybe it wasn't, or maybe it didn't understand. So what I concede to both of you is that from 
9-11, maybe probably from 1989 when the contours of this conflict was emerging, America made some very bad mistakes. They didn't understand. The people who were in the leadership positions didn't understand or perhaps didn't conceive of it as a civilizational conflict. And so there are a set of policy decisions that the United States of America made that are in fact wrong and you both are justified in saying this is just terrible. The way this whole thing was led was awful and I wholeheartedly agree with that. But it doesn't take us out of that conundrum. It doesn't take us out of that conflict. And the conflict is one of values and norms and laws and philosophies. And that then seeps into the way we collaborate, we trade, we have diplomatic ties with, or we have a conflict with the Islamic or the Muslim civilization, and particularly the way that we compete. So do we, A, recognize that we are actually facing a civilizational conflict, and if your position is yes, then what's America's position in that? If it's no, I think we're going to get into a different um, kind of discussion. Um, and how can we, can we come out, assuming that yes, it's a civilizational conflict, how can we emerge out of this triumphant? Thank you. Again, I'm not quite sure what my role is, but one thing I might try to do is refine the question just a little bit. Um, I, I find that the question is, uh, is, can the war on Islamic fundamentalism be justified? Uh, I think, first of all, we have to understand what we're talking about in terms of war. Um, I, obviously, the, the major sense in which it's being used here is violent conflict, military conflict. But I suppose if you were just talking about debates or something, why then that's all right. We're all in favor of debates. The, the term that I have a problem with is Islamic fundamentalism here. Uh, first of all, because I'm not sure that fundamentalism even applies. That's a, that's a topic of great intense discussion among specialists on Islam. Can you really speak about Islamic fundamentalism? Uh, the term fundamentalism originates in a very American context out of a Protestant, a series of Protestant pamphlets that were published in California in the, I don't know, the 19-teens, I think, called The Fundamentals, in which they outlined what they regarded as the fundamental ideas of Christianity that must be accepted to be a Christian. Uh, and then that kind of conservative Christianity began to be called fundamentalism. Then gradually it's been applied to Jewish fundamentalism, Hindu fundamentalism, uh, Islamic fundamentalism. But does it really fit? That's problematic. Although Muslims themselves have tended to adopt that terminology. You talk about the usuliyin, the, um, well, fundamentalist is a pretty good translation of that. They've also adopted the Middle East for the description of their own area or the Near East, and I think, near to what? Paris, Rome? I mean, why, why do you make that the center? Of course, I grew up as a Westerner. I could never understand why I lived in the, in the West. West of what? The center of the universe? Where, where is that exactly? New York? Um, but... Um, Greenwich. <laughs> Rapid City. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, so I would say on one level, uh, a war on Islamic fundamentalism is definitely not appropriate. People can hold whatever views they want to hold, and not all fundamentalists are violent. And however you define that term, it's a very vague term. If, if you talk to most Muslims, I think, I've seen some survey data, but I don't trust it necessarily, most of them would agree with what we would regard as sort of fundamentalist terminology, that is, is the, is the Quran inerrant? Is it the, the absolutely flawless word of God, and so on? analogous to Christian fundamentalists, Protestant fundamentalists. But most of those people are not violent. The vast majority of Muslims are not. There's, a, there's an interesting book that came out a few years ago called Why Are There So Few Islamic Terrorists? And the fellow had actually surveyed and found Osama bin Laden and uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri and people like that were really frustrated by the fact they couldn't recruit more people. Most people might say, well, it's sort of sympathetic, but no, we're not going to join up. So those people, let them believe what they want. We have no business going to war with them because they hold a view of the Quran that we don't share. Um, 
So I've heard the term here used already this afternoon, the war on terror, the war on Islamic extremism. Those things might be more useful than just a war on Islamic fundamentalism, I think. That's a more useful way of conceptualizing it. Now that I've blunted the momentum of the discussion, though, I'll quit and, and let you, if you want to respond to each other. You want to start? Go ahead. So I think that there are a few things. So in terms of answering the question about is there this civilizational conflict, I think that certainly for the individuals who are holding these extremist views, I think that they very much see it that way. Um, I am not and do not profess to be a scholar of, of Islam, so I can't attest to, to that more broadly. I think, though, it's, there's something more than just saying, oh, the United States selected bad policies. The United States, and frankly, any larger government, is going to select policies that are ultimately not going to work in this arena. And let me explain why. In order to effectively carry out these types of policies, we effectively have to assume, and this is not an exaggeration, that the officials responsible for carrying out these types of policies are both omniscient and benevolent. They have to be able to understand a impossibly complicated scenario in which they are interacting have to understand how interventions in one part of this complex system impact other parts of this incredibly complex system. And then assume that they can do that. So that's one assumption, which I think most of us would probably agree is pretty heroic to make. The other component of this is you have to then assume away incentive problems. So things like problems that come along with bureaucracy or other types of self-interest that come along when we go about engaging in any type of policy, but particularly defense policy. So you talk about things like the military-industrial complex and so on. And so I think that when we talk about this in terms of if we take the premises given that this should be something that we should potentially be doing, I think we have another layer of problems which are frankly insurmountable for those two particular reasons. And I'll, uh, I'll stop there. Cool. Okay. Can I please react to the assumptions of benevolence and omniscience? Okay, the omniscience bit, I would say in terms of how, let me take one step back and say, um, if you are a student of foreign relations, the most important principle that you're going to learn is that any nation, any given nation, will act first and foremost in its self-interest. So I would say, do we agree on that? So any given nation in relation to other nations will act or react in its self-interest. Then building on that, depending also on the amount of power that a given nation assumes that it has, it can fancy that it's omniscient. But when it comes to benevolence, is it acting not only doing what is right for itself, but what is right for the world, that concept is not a given. It is, in fact, very, very new, and it is what makes America, and America as a hegemony, different from all other types of hegemonies. That is the commitment to say, okay, we're going into Afghanistan, they've attacked us, we are attacked from that particular place. We're not only going to deter them, but we're also going to go nation build we'll give them something in return. We'll go into Iraq and we'll leave a place better behind than what we found. That is not how humanity and human beings interacted and nations interacted with one another. It was you attacked us, we're gonna destroy you. We'll turn your place into rubble. So this concept that you don't turn your enemy an enemy's territory into rubble 
and transform them into your image, that idea is relatively new and very much American. And the fact that in America, those policymakers made mistakes, huge mistakes, I concede hereby, that's a given. But America is still up to this day acting or trying to act in its self-interest and limit the casualties on the other side, do what is right and benevolent. And so from there, I think it's really not an assumption that we can all agree on. China is not doing that. The Islamist movements, whether they're led by theocratic movements or not, they are not doing that. So the assumption of benevolence is not a given. Now carry on. No, what I'm saying is simply that in order for these interventions to be successful, those are the necessary background assumptions in order for something to effectively work to say, we are going to go from point A to point B with point B being more preferable. In order for those things to occur within that way, those are the background assumptions that need to be made. And so we can talk about the United States and people have talked about the United States in this way. People talked about the British Empire in this way as being the, you know, the global, the global superpower, the hegemony. And people talked about the United States as being this force for good. But I think that if we look at this seriously, then once we relax those assumptions, then what we are capable of doing, and when I say we, I mean the United States in the aggregate, which I don't like doing, um, because countries do not act. Individuals within those countries make decisions. I think that once we relax those types of assumptions, then what we are capable of potentially doing and being successful at, at doing, I, I think that, that narrows considerably. Um, and certainly in a success would be defined in a much narrower term than what people typically ascribe to it. Um, so, yeah, I'll just add a couple of things there. Yeah, I think, first of all, it's, it's a mistaken assumption that nations act in their best interest. They act in the interests of the people who are in charge of the government at any given time, who may or may not give a damn about their own country at all. And... Yeah. And they do definitely talk a lot about how much they care about the people that they're killing. But let's get real, in the last 20 years, they've killed something like 2 million people in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Syria. We have a no fooling genocide going on right now, backing the Saudis, the UAE, and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula against their enemies in Yemen. That's not a mistake made by people who are trying to be selfless and benevolent and help the world. Those are very deliberate and extremely cruel choices that have been made. Now, even when they're trying to do the right thing, even according to their own interests, uh, touching on the knowledge problem there, they have no idea what they're doing. There's a famous anecdote of Paul Bremer turned to the daughter of a Republican donor who was his aide. This is the Viceroy in Iraq War II. And he said, who's this Muqtada al-Sadr guy? And she said, oh, don't worry, he's just some minor cleric. Because she didn't know either, but it turned out he was the most important man in Iraq. And he's the most important kingmaker among the Shiites in that country to this day. And these people had absolutely no idea what they were doing. They thought that if they invaded Iraq, they would empower Turkey and Jordan over Iraq would stick it to the Iranians and force Hezbollah to be nice to Israel. They put Iran's best friends in power in Baghdad, and they've been supporting al-Qaeda terrorists to try to make up for it ever since, is the reality of the situation. Now I want to touch on something the professor said that I think is extremely important, that even in the absolute chaos, the height of Iraq War III, after Bush's Iraq War II, and then Obama's war in Syria had led to the rise of the Islamo-fascist caliphate of Glenn Beck's worst war propaganda from the Bush years, with a clone of bin Laden, this guy Baghdadi, declaring himself the Caliph Ibrahim, sacred ruler of the divinely ordained caliphate. 
and demanded that true believers from across the Muslim world come to join in their fight, got 30, 40,000 men at the most at their height as their armed force. And most of those were just local Iraqi conscripts with no bin Ladenite ideology whatsoever. So even in all of the chaos in America's wars, which have indirectly benefited Al-Qaeda, like in Iraq War II, or directly been fought on their behalf, like in Libya, Syria, and in Yemen, we still see only low tens of thousands of people that you could legitimately call bin Ladenite international terrorists. Al-Shabaab in Somalia, you have to pretend that when they get a sack of money from the Saudis and say, oh, we love Osama, that that's meaningful, even though Al-Shabaab has never waged attacks outside of Somalia's borders. And even though Al-Shabaab, as you guys won't be surprised to learn if you didn't already know, wasn't a problem in Somalia until six years into the war that George W. Bush started there in 2001. So the reason for that war is actually an effect of that war, and now it's pathetic excuse, uh, you know, almost 15 years after that. And, and now, as far as the clash of civilizations go, I mean, I think there's a clash of civilizations going on just inside this country right now, where those of us who want liberty are up against collectivists and authoritarians on the right and the left, Who, who we can hardly get to listen to reason at all. And if we want to spread you know, our libertarian principles of natural rights, individual liberty, property, laissez-faire market capitalism, and self-government, that the way to do that, as the great Ron Paul said, is to show the world how it's done and lead them by example. The worst thing you could do in the world is drop cluster bombs on people and then tell them that that is freedom and liberty and democracy. And our country right now is moving far to the left, economically speaking. The younger generations are convinced of socialism because they're convinced it's the opposite of what we have now, this most corrupt and blood-soaked capitalism. They can't imagine trying to sell it to the world who would never want to buy it. And they've completely blown their opportunity. Whereas if they had ended the terror war by Christmas of 2001, as they could have, and spent the rest of the time even critically lecturing Islamic countries about the way that they do things wrong. There's horrible uh, customs of female um, genital mutilation in Kurdistan and in Eastern Africa. The freedom of religion in Pakistan is the most shameful thing in the world. They stone people to death for converting to Christianity. As Americans know very well, because our government's been propping them up for 20 years, there's a horrible epidemic of warlords raping young girls and boys in Afghanistan. There are all kinds of problems. Saudi Arabia, our closest allies over there, cuts the hands off of thieves, stones women to death, on accusations of adultery and even crucify people and behead them on, for charges of witchcraft and sorcery, which you get it that all those people have to be innocent because there's no such thing as that. And that's our closest country that we support in the region. And um, so, uh, you know, the opposite of that would be to simply do like Ron Paul said, show the world by example how we're supposed to be. And then if we want to criticize them, honestly and faithfully as fellow humans that they're not doing liberty right, they're not following our Bill of Rights and our example well enough, or that we'd be doing that from a position where we're not standing in a swimming pool of the blood of innocent people. Where in fact, in fact, the worst thing about Pakistan is America's war there. And the worst thing about Somalia is America's war there. And the worst thing about Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Libya, America's wars. And so what leg do we have to stand on to criticize them for stoning a woman to death when we'll drop a hellfire missile on her car? And not all libertarians are this way, but I am for world revolution. I am for spreading the ideology of libertarianism to the four corners of the planet Earth. 
And I think it's the future of mankind, if we're to have a future, is that we're going to respect each other as individuals. As you guys know, all those borders are drawn in the wrong places. And the world needs liberty so that we don't have to fight about all of this. And if we are going to spread that message, we're going to have to have a government here that acts like the limited constitutional self-government uh, operated uh, machine that we claim that we're trying to get the rest of the world to follow our example on. So that's all. Thank you. So I will say. And sorry I went on so long ago. With permission uh, from the moderator, I'll say I'm listening to you and there is so much that I hear you say that is music to my ears, right? Let liberty rule. Uh, female genital mutilation, the oppression of women, um, all the terrible, terrible stuff that goes on in the world, that should come to an end. And America's role is to say, instead of imposing it on these societies and different cultures, do as America does, lead by example. That is music to my ears, right? So I think let's just build on what we agree on. That's the consensus lead by example. We have, as you said, our own intra, I wouldn't call that civilization, but we have our own internal problems, right? We have our own internal problems and it's a long laundry list that we within the borders of America need to fix. Totally agree on that. But now, and I, I think here is where it starts to rub a little, is what happens when we are attacked? What does Rand Paul say? And I've met Senator Paul. What do we do when we are attacked on our soil, when our allies are attacked, when we also happen to be the most powerful country on the planet, and we happen to be the most powerful country on the planet because of our principles? Because I think freedom and the underlying principles of freedom are appealing and they're powerful. And I see us getting there. But we do have a military for reason. We are a hegemony for a reason. And if you say, and I know that people are saying that, it's a legitimate position. If you say, even when we are attacked, we should recede into isolation. We should close our doors. We should shrink away from the world. And we should just wait for them, those barbarians out there, to catch up with us. We should is what you say. We should is what Rand Paul says. But remember, you take the world as it is first before you can make the world as it should be. And if you let your adversaries shape and reshape the world, and you lead from behind, you are going to get realities like ISIS. You are going to get realities like the mass exodus out of the Middle East and Africa into Europe. You are going to get a country like China ascendant. And before you know it, because you did nothing with your position of hegemony, you are actually conveying the message that you are happy to follow. I'm not. Yeah. Would you give that same advice to bin Laden and Zawahiri that they should fight back against us rather than sitting there and taking it as our civilization meets out deadly violence against them? I don't need to give them that advice. They are doing it. Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State of uh, Syria and Iraq, thankfully that was toppled. But Saudi Arabia, didn't begin all of September these countries. No, it didn't begin in, this, in September 11th. It began 1,400 years ago. America is an outcome of Western civilization. It was given birth to by a number of people in Europe who defected from Europe because Europe was being too fanatical, too religious. Europe was like the Middle East back then. 
And a bunch of people came here and founded America on the idea, these ideas of liberty and equality and everything that we enjoy today. But one thing we understand about liberty though is you can't just sit back and close the doors and say, let them fight it out, let them figure it out. You have to take the lead. That is America. But you also can't export democracy at gunpoint. We are not exporting democracy at gunpoint. We are exporting democracy by example. People, Arabs today, they are voting with their feet. They're coming to America. They are voting with their pocketbook. They consume more American culture than anywhere else. They love American goods. We failed, I agree with you, I totally agree with you, we made horrible mistakes, but the most important mistake that we make, and we continue to make, and you are both doing it, is we continue to market the values, the principles that make America great and exceptional. That's what we are failing at. We're having a squabble about, oh yeah, 9-11-2001, that's only 20 years ago. Your mistake is you're making is that you're assuming somehow that this clash of civilizations, if such as it is, was begun by their side. No. But that's not no, true. No, 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 no. I'm not, not saying true. that. No. Look, the MI6 and the CIA no, were it, the it, primary no. backers of Islamic fundamentalist groups no, all start, around the Middle East. You start. You are making... You're saying we... No, don't, no, no, no. You are making the mistake no. of starting history with the FBI and the CIA. No, I'm... Human history started a long time ago before that. And, okay. as, and as humans continue forth, we will always have these conflicts, these confrontations on philosophy. Whose philosophy is superior? The philosophy that you just described that I find so appealing, which is the one that is based on individual freedom, the rule of law, all our freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom, all of this is an outcome of a long time of history and culture and yes, military power. Because okay. if there was no military power, there would have been no way of guaranteeing those things. Ma'am, I just add a historical note here. The fact is that, uh, and I find myself in an odd position because on a stage at Freedom Fest several years ago, I debated Robert Spencer on the issue of whether, essentially whether Islam is irredeemably violent, and so on. My argument was that it is not, and that there were dissenting voices, there were different voices early on uh, about the nature of jihad. Uh, could it be aggressive? Was it purely defensive, and so on? But since the time of the imperial caliphate, say the 800s, the ideologues who argued for an aggressive imperialistic jihad have won. And that is what's enshrined in all the classical books and so on. So I find myself sometimes wondering when I hear people saying, look, if we had just left them alone, everything would be fine. They would leave us alone. Yeah, I think yeah. That's, that's naive. There, there are voices there that, that have wanted an aggressive war against the non-Muslim world and have fought it. Islam expanded from the borders of Spain to the borders of India in the first century after the death of the prophet. Uh, and that was aggressive imperialistic warfare. Except in 2001, the whole region is run by nationalists and monarchs backed by the United States, Baathists wearing French berets. You're right. There's no caliph anywhere. There's not, there wasn't a single Islamist state run in the region, other than if you want to count Salah's Yemen, which had been working for the United States since he united the country 30 years ago. And if I, if, if I may make uh, an alternative point here, but it goes along with what we're saying, because and this often happens too, and it's not just happening right now, but typically when we talk about issues related to foreign intervention, the impetus is put on people to say we should not intervene. But we have data, we have body counts of millions of people indicating what it is that war does. And we know that when the US has gone abroad and intervened, particularly within the context of the war on terror, that it has not only failed, but it has failed miserably. And so the impetus then is on the individuals who want to do the intervention to point out and to illustrate to us what is it about this particular time that is going to be different than the umpteen times before where we've seen exactly where that's gotten. I, I, think, 
I think World War II was a pretty successful intervention. If well, you have to go back to 1946 to find a successful intervention, that's not, that that's long not a good history. example. That's a lot of wars ago. <laughs> well, the answer then, but very clearly, okay, so 1945 was a huge success. And not every intervention that the U.S. does is a miserable failure. But even if we agreed that interventions that the U.S. does are a failure, the answer is then not retreat. The answer is then do better next time. Learn from your mistakes. The, the current administration is saying right now, let's just pull out of the Middle East, let's pull out of Afghanistan. Let's, and the previous administration did that too. That is a horrible, horrible decision. We shouldn't do that. That is, that is to me the meaning of failure. We've invented all this, invested all this blood and treasure. Please, can we just be patient? Can we wait is, for it to bear fruit? Can it, we, what are we going to tell the wives, the widows, um, the, the children, the orphan children of the men and women that we sent to Afghanistan and Iraq? Are we going to say that all that was in vain? So we should that add died more? In vain? So we should wait, so we should then engage in more policies that will cost more people their lives and their livelihoods no. and have potentially ir like irreversible changes on the institutions that we purport to want no. to export no, what I'm saying because is, of the problem so no, far. That's, what it means is that when we are sitting at the drawing board and we're making these decisions, we should do them in such a way we should do them in such a way that we minimize, minimize some of these mistakes and learn from our mis the mistakes that we made in the past. But the proposition, listen, America is now the leader of the free world. It's also a global leader. There is a global world that America led after 1945, after we defeated Hitler and the Nazis. That world, is led by America. And it's a world that's interconnected. And it's interconnected on an economic level, political level, healthcare. We're just talking about you know, things happening in COVID and other pandemics and things like that. With that, do we want American leadership or are we going to sit back and say, let someone else do that? I'm saying from the perspective of a woman who was born in Somalia, from being a woman, from really enjoying the foods that we have, that even though America and American policymakers are not perfect by any means, I would prefer it to a world led by China, or a world led by Saudi Arabia, or a world led by no one in a total and complete vacuum and anarchy. I don't like that. Here's I would rather that we improve American foreign policy than that America abandons the world. Okay. That's basically what I'm saying. Our national debt right now is $30 trillion. America, which our constitution, if you've ever read it, describes a limited republic and not a world empire. America is broke. America, the most productive economy on the planet, can't afford global hegemony. And if we can't afford it, then I don't think you have much to fear from China or Russia or Saudi Arabia taking over the world either. Dream the reality on. is, the reality Dream is China has been an isolationist power for 3,000 years. Dream okay, they're not even going to Uzbekistan, much less crossing the Pacific Ocean to take North America away from us. That's a ridiculous joke. Who here thinks that communism is a great way to run an economy? a real efficient way. And I see a show of hands of people who think the Chinese government is really good at deciding what price levels should be and, and yeah. Okay, they're no threat to the United States whatsoever. Okay. Neither yeah. is Russia. And, and the fact is, the worst thing about the United States of America is our national security state. It's the reason we have an FBI counterintelligence division. <laughs> remember the guys, remember the guys who spent three years framing Donald Trump for treason with Russia and the whole thing was a giant hoax? That was the FBI counterintelligence division and the CIA who shouldn't exist. Except that we need them, we need them to protect us from the foreign enemies that they create for us. I know. I'll be brief, I promise. Because one of the things that I've said a few times, which I agree with, 
is to lead by example. I think Scott makes a really good point about it's hard to lead from example if your own house is on fire. Instead of focusing our policy on trying to fix what's wrong with them, whoever them happens to be, instead focus on policies that are domestic. Because there are things that we can do to do things like export our quote unquote American values. Doing things like making substantial changes to trade policy. So eliminating trade barriers which prevent us from trading with the rest of the world, which exports ideas. Because as goods cross barriers, guess what? Ideas do too. And you can also do something else. You can make substantial changes to things like immigration policy, which is another really big, obviously, topic of discussion, but some other additional low-hanging fruit. Fix what's going on domestically, and then you can talk about exporting your policies. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, the lights in my eyes, and I was so fascinated by the conversation, I didn't even notice all the people lining up out there. So I've been remiss in my duty, and I'm sorry. So could you be really quick? We'll go here, and then there, and here, and there, as much as we can cram in. Yes. So uh, to Ms. Hersey Ali's point, without getting into this endless back and forth about who started what, if we start with the premise that we take the world as it is and we promise to do better going forward, isn't it a rather important piece of the puzzle to ask the extremists why they did what they did? Because they've told us. They're not recruiting based on women wearing blue jeans in America. They're recruiting based on the bombs that we keep dropping. So if that's their recruiting tactic, and if that's the reason why they're able to not only radicalize themselves, but also their countrymen, isn't that a rather important part of the puzzle that we need to figure out? And I think would lend to, to Mr. Horton's point about maybe the bombs need to quit dropping and maybe they'll have less reason to not only attack us, but also recruit their countrymen to do the same. So a good question. And you touch on so many things. And again, there are so many assumptions right in there. But what I have done is I've actually studied what it is that the people whom we call Islamic extremists or fundamentalists are saying. So I read Said Qutb. I read Hassan al-Banna. I read bin Laden. They're not saying that they're acting the way that they're acting because bombs are dropped on them. They are saying that their societies, Muslim societies, have left the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and scripture. They're saying that Western civilization, Europeans and Americans, have facilitated what they describe as a decay. And the bottom line is that they're saying, we need not only impose Islamic law on Muslim societies, and many of them, many Muslims are resisting that, but alongside that, we also need to impose, I know it sounds wildly ambitious, but that's what they're saying. They want to impose it on America and the rest of the world. And they have picked America as their enemy because they see when they compare the set of values that they're promoting, advancing, and dying for. And they put it side by side with the set of values that America stands for. They're baffled. They're baffled because they're, they're, this individual freedom, secular government, rule of law, free press, this free association, free, 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 that is not supposed to withstand the weather of, you know, attacks, nature, it's not how it's meant to be. And yet, America's all powerful, or these country, Western countries are more powerful than them. So they're going to their own societies and they're saying, stop looking at America for leadership, whether it's in terms of values, norms, or whether it is material and economic gain, or whether it is looking for, ditch America. And those who refuse, those who are Muslim and who refuse to ditch America, they're going to, be, they're going to be punished. That's what they're saying. If they were saying it's because of American foreign policy, it's because of the bombs, and I would be the first one in line to say, well, it's very easy, because we stop bombing, they stop attacking us, and they stop oppressing their people, but it's much, much more complex than that. And it's also much, much older than that. Okay. That's just not true. 
Okay, anyone. I look, this is anyone, the facts. I will give you. It's, let's, let's read anyone can, together. Anyone, let's read Al-Qaeda together. Anyone it's, can, it's, that's what they're saying. <laughs> anyone can read Osama's declaration of war against the United States from 1996 and from 1998. And they both go on at length about American bases in Saudi Arabia, bombing and blockading Iraq, support for Israel, support for all the dictatorships of the Middle East, pressure on them to keep their oil prices artificially low to subsidize our economy at their expense, and as they put it, which is actually not true, turning a blind eye to Russia and China and India's uh, oppression of Muslims when in fact the Clinton government backed the Uyghurs against China and backed the Chechens and the Bosnians against the uh, Russian-aligned Serbs. And you can just read it yourself. Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, on September 11th, he volunteered to join Al-Qaeda after he read bin Laden's Declaration of War of 1996 and read its emphasis on the Kana massacre perpetrated by the Israelis in 1996 in Kana, Lebanon, where 108 women and children were killed in a UN shelter. And according to his biographer, Terry McDermott, Mohammed uh, Atta and his best friend, Ramzi bin Al-Sheib, who's in Guantanamo to this day, that was what made them decide to go and join Al-Qaeda, was that Al-Qaeda, bin Laden said he wanted to punish the United States for supporting Israel in their oppression of the Palestinians and the Lebanese, and that's just a fact. And if Syed Kuteb said he didn't like R-rated movies, that doesn't mean anything to the 19 hijackers who crashed those planes that day. As Michael Scheuer, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, pointed out, the Ayatollah Khomeini spent the entire 1980s railing against America's corrupt and decadent culture, and nobody cared. Bin Laden, on the other hand, stuck to deliberate and specific criticisms of American foreign policies. Bases in Saudi to bomb and blockade Iraq, support for Israel, support for the kings of the region, pressure on them to keep oil prices low, and turning a blind eye to Russia, China, India, and Uzbekistan in their oppression against Muslims. Read it and weep. It's right there on Amazon.com. Can I just ask a yes or no question? Real quick. Really I wanted quick. to thank you, Ayan, for your bravery and for your courage, because I know your history and I've read your books, and I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for your courage. It takes thank a lot. You. Thank you. Um, is it possible, do you believe it's possible um, for Islamic fundamentalists to integrate into the West? If so, how? Is it possible for Islamic fundamentalists to integrate? I know that they've made attempts to integrate into the West. I know that they have made attempts to try and influence our government leaders, our media, our education system. It's called da'wah. If I had more time, I would talk about it. But I think that is also why it's incredible to me that we're entertaining the conclusion that because bin Laden and his ilk demand that we stop supporting Israel, that we actually consider it, yeah. Thank you, everybody. Yeah.